Jedi. Yes. Did, did you want to tell us what happened with your breaks today? Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm in Hawaii, right? <laughs> my auntie has this echo, this old echo. I think it's 2004. And I was getting off the freeway and taking a turn and I almost crashed into this truck and construction workers. I thought I was pressing the wrong pedal, but yeah. it turns out going because where, where I'm at, there's a lot of um, hills. So it turns out where I'm at, I couldn't stop the, you know, going up the hill and going, holding the hill. I was rolling back getting to my destination, I couldn't stop. <laughs> so what had happened was I had to ride the wall and kind of like wait for the incline of the hill in order yeah. to stop. So then I had to run back down the hill in order to <laughs> be on time for this podcast. Oh my so God. I, I'm just having one hell of a day. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, Joe, I did want to say something. As we get more and more listeners, we were just saying we get like a spike on our listeners. We're going to get more and more messages, whether the people like us or hate us. But I got a message about you, Joe. Oh boy. Some guy is some guy's a bone to pick with you about the Hunter Biden laptop. Okay. <laughs> he said, why does Joe assume that the FBI is on the up and up when you said something like the FBI would have found something by now if they had it for all this time? No. Oh, all right. <laughs> I, honestly, I'm not even going to entertain that thought. The FBI is the good guys. They always have been. Just because Donald Trump told you they're the bad guys, don't believe what he said. I have a video up I'm playing tonight on Divided We Stand where Steve Bannon mm -hmm. says on tape all of the Hunter Biden stuff is fake. It was but, just but, meant but, to but, close but it just meant to close the gap because Trump was going to get his butt kicked and he did. What were we going to say Jedi? I said, I mean, the FBI can't be all up and up. Aren't we going to talk about JFK and the FBI? <laughs> I don't know who did it. I don't know. <laughs> I always thought it was the Cubans, but we'll find out. Now, Joe, you said Trump got his ass kicked. I'm still holding out for Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, listen, uh, again, they more or less have, honest to God, audio video of Steve Bannon explaining that that was just a political move. There's nothing to the Hunter Biden thing, which is absolutely insane. And then it gets worse. I know a lot of people are like, why did Nancy Pelosi not call a National Guard? Um, the Secretary of Defense, Chris Miller, two days earlier, uh, changed the law on all that. And the reason why he did it was actually he was afraid Trump was going to try to use any outbreak of violence to declare martial law and to bring in the National Guard. And he didn't want Trump to do that. And that's what shorthanded everybody at the Capitol. Now, Joe, something else that I'm just learning now. Now, can you be really religious in a Democrat, or is that rare? Yeah, I've been oh, noticing God. Dude, Nancy Pelosi's a Catholic, for crying out loud. Yeah, there's a this, this idea that liberals are godless atheists is silly. I told you um, last week, the, the Democrat who passed the um, abortion ban in Louisiana is a black Baptist Christian woman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can definitely you can definitely be a Democrat and be religious. I would say if you were not religious, you absolutely would be unelectable to Republicans.
Hmm. Okay. So it only goes that way. Yeah. Yeah. The people on the left are, are fine with religion. Again, this idea of like the god the godless, you know, child eating, baby eating. Yeah. It's that's there. No. The the well, only as a matter of fact, I... I find I find their admiration and respect of religion on the left to be stupid, to be honest. They they put so much credence in that because a lot of them believe it. And again, I think to be an atheist, you would have to live in like Cambridge or you yeah, know, right. like some North, liberal North, bastion in, in like, California. Like, yeah, like Berkeley. Like North, sure. North Otherwise, you yeah. would never get elected. And beyond. Todd, Jedi, and producer Joe here, and we're back again with our special guest, Dr. Jim Fetzer, retired philosophy of science professor and one who has published over 100 articles and books, including The Assassination Science, which outlines the assassination of JFK. Even after all of these years, there's still a fascination with his death. Now, Jedi, this is our 56th episode, and I know me and you love looking at the numbers for all of yeah. our shows. And one of one of our most popular and downloaded shows when we had you on about six weeks ago, Jim. So we're excited to learn more about JFK. So November 22nd, 1963. Joe, you want to tell us a little bit about what happened? Absolutely. Uh, it was right about noon, about 1230 Central Time in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy was riding in the presidential motorcade. Uh, through Daly Plaza. He was in the vehicle along with his wife, Jacqueline, and Texas's governor, John Connolly, as well as his wife, Nellie, when he was shot twice, once in the neck, and uh, seriously wounded was the governor of Texas, Connolly, as well. They rushed that motorcade to Parkland Memorial Hospital, where JFK was pronounced dead about 30 minutes later. Uh, the governor of Texas, John Connolly, did survive, Lee Harvey Oswald, a former U.S. Marine, was arrested 70 minutes after the shooting by the Dallas police, which yes. is awfully sus. You, you think that guy would have got out of Dodge quick. Right? Yeah, and, and, and you look at the conspiracies on this. I mean, there's like 15 different things out there over the years, at least, that people think possibly could have happened. So, uh, Jim, thanks for coming on again. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm delighted. Thanks. I'm delighted. The, the... The motorcade was running late. It, they were, it was actually 1230 when he was shot. And uh, there's so much going on. Shall we take a look at some of what I got here for you? Yeah. So if you're listening, uh, listening to the podcast, check us on YouTube and you can uh, see what Jim's going to show us. What happened to JFK? Did Oliver Stone get it right? Pleasure to be with you guys. Here's the official account, of course. Three shots fired from a six-floor window of the book depository. Uh, according to the official FBI Secret Service analysis that day, 
there were three shots with three hits that Jack was hit in the back about five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column. Governor Conley was hit in the back and then Jack was hit in the back of the head. But it would turn out that a shot missed and injured a distant bystander and they had to reconstruct on the basis of only two bullets, which led to a lot of imaginative theorizing. Oliver Stone had a brilliant, I call it magisterial, 1991 JFK that was largely right. In fact, in my opinion, it's the most accurate, complete, and detailed presentation of what actually happened in Dealey Plaza ever presented to the mass media through the major, through, through, through uh, you know, mass marketing. Uh, but he had, there were some flaws to his account that I believe were due to Robert Grodin, who was advising him, including that he believed at the time that the whole movie known as the Zapruder film was accurate when it had been massively edited. He did not know that Lee Oswald actually, and many Americans don't know this, was standing in the doorway of the book depository when it, the shooting went down. And he also did not know that there were more than not just the three shooting teams he specified, there were actually eight shooters. I approach this by bringing together experts from multiple different fields, approaching it in scientific reasoning. After all, conspiracy theories are theories and they can be appraised by the same standards as scientific theories. Something doesn't fit in with your background knowledge. Well, you were talking about the early arrest. Would you believe the arrest report was actually written before the arrest took place, speculation. Maybe Oswald was, as he suggested himself, a patsy. Indeed, the evidence that he cannot have done it is overwhelming adaptation of hypotheses to evidence, which hypothesis, if it were true, would confer the higher probability upon the available relevant evidence with special concern to sorting out the authentic from the fabricated. Look at what we already know. He was arrested super fast. He wasn't actually in the sixth floor window, but in the doorway. All that makes it overwhelmingly improbable that he could have done it. I mean, after all, if he was in the doorway when the motorcade passed by, not only can he have not been the lone demented gunman, but he can't have been one of the multiple shooters. Then when all the evidence settles down because you've sorted it out, you're entitled to accept the best supported hypothesis in the tentative infallible fashion of science. If you want more details, check out my piece online, thinking about conspiracy theories, 9-11 and JFK, where I spell this all out. Now, when Malcolm killed up the acting press secretary announced his death at one o'clock, he pointed to his right temple, saying it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head. Well, ask yourself, what's the probability Malcolm killed up would be reporting that the president died from a simple bullet right through the head if all of the shots had been fired from above and behind. I mean, already that very day, we had proof that the official narrative we would be told would be fake. And indeed, if you go back and look at, for example, NBC uh, Tell Us Now, and there you see Chet Huntley on the left, one of the famous newsmen of his time. He and David Brinkley were a broadcasting team that was celebrated throughout America. Well, that whole afternoon, and this was the event that drew the American people to television, made it an indispensable part of our lives. They were reporting two wounds. One was a shot to the throat. 
a small clean puncture wound that Dr. Malcolm Perry, MD, who'd performed a simple tracheostomy incision through the throat, explained at a Parkland press conference that occurred at 3.30 in the afternoon that he repeated three different times a bullet was coming at him, that it was a wound of entry, and they duly reported on television. Later in the afternoon, they reported a follow-up on what you heard from Malcolm Kildruff, namely he had a bullet right through the head, entering about the right temple that blew his brains out the back of his head. Now, both of which was attributed to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal position. Now notice, both of those shots were fired from in front. And I believe therefore, when a year later, we got the, the story from the Warren Commission that there only been three shots that fired from above and behind many Americans, even if only dimly remembering, recognized something was not wrong. Now, if you take a look at the drawing, then you see if you put together the shot to the back that they initially claimed had taken place and the shot to the back of the head, and then add in the shot to the throat and the shot to the right temple, actually, that's what happened with the exception that David Mantic, MD, the world's leading expert on the medical evidence, believes there may have been a third shot to the head. And these occurred after the limousine had been pulled to the left and, and to a halt. In other words, Jack was initially shot in the back, but it was a, you know, not a very serious wound. Roy Kellerman, the agent in charge in the right passenger seat, said he heard the president call out, I'm hit. Then he was shot in the throat by a, a bullet that actually passed through the windshield in transit but he was still alive. So we had a man at the curb who was with an umbrella, the only figure in the entire motorcade who had an umbrella, he was pumping it up and down. It was a signal to all the shooters that the target was still alive, keep shooting. And you have a figure known as a Cuban who steps out and gives a fist gesture and Greer, the driver, pulls the limousine to a left and to a halt so abruptly that it jostled all the passengers forward, all the passengers forward. So you think, well, the, you, think the, you think the umbrella man has something to do with this? Yeah, absolutely. The, the umbrella man was communicating. All the shooters in their different locations could see him. As long mm -hmm. as he's pumping, that means he's still alive. Keep shooting. And, and the, the, the Cuban who comes out with his fist gesture telling Greer to stop. So he pulls the limousine to a halt. They're all jostled. They're all thrown forward. But it had to be edited out just as they had to edit out when, when they turned from Houston onto Elm, the driver swung out too widely. He mistook the frontage road in front of the Texas Book Depository for Elm Street, nearly hit a concrete abutment there, had to pause and get back in the line. And it was a lead limousine, which I'm gonna point out is one of the key indications of Secret Service complicity and setting him up. The presidential limousine should have been in the middle should have been preceded by the mayor, the vice president, then you lead up to the president. I'll, I'll go through that now. But yeah, raise questions at, at any point you like. There have been more than 15 indications of Secret Service complicity. Two agents who would have accompanied the limousine were left behind at Love Field by Emery Roberts, the agent in charge. Here's one of them, Henry Ribka, expressing dismay. These were the guys who would have provided the closest security. A motorcycle escort was downtown to four. They were instructed not to ride ahead of the rear wheels. One of the officers said it was the damnedest formation he'd ever encountered. 
JFK's military aide, who normally would have sat in the front seat in between the driver, William Greer, and Roy Kellerman, was moved to the final vehicle along with the president's personal physician where they would be in the worst possible position to render him aid. Among these more than 15 indications of Secret Service, the manhole covers weren't welded, open windows were not covered, the crowd was allowed to spill into the street. Look at the open windows there. Three in a row right there. Look at the crowd spilling into the street. It got even worse. Look at this. How outrageous is this? You got the presidential limousine, a guy with a handgun could have been there in the bus and killed him. Look at the crowd. They ordered the 110th military intelligence unit to stand down over the adamant opposition of his commander. They should have been in the city to provide crowd control. Governor Conley was instrumental in making a change to the motorcade route on the 18th of November, just four days before the event. Now, normally, they fix a motorcade route and it's never changed because they got to investigate every building, every occupant of every building, make it all secure. In this case, they did none of the above. And by changing, instead of going straight up Main Street, which they could have got onto the freeway and got to JFK's destination, they changed it to make this turn onto Houston and then 110 degree onto Elm Street, which was again a violation of Secret Service protocol in order to bring the target into the kill zone. Most tellingly, the point I've made, the vehicles were in the improper sequence. The presidential vehicle should never have been out front. By the way, they were all vehicles of different makes, models, and colors. That's very, very odd. You'll see normally a presidential motorcade is all monotonously black, usually Cadillac limousines. But this way, the perps knew every vehicle, every occupant of every vehicle exactly where they were. At Parkland, uh, one of the Secret Service got up, loaded a bucket and sponge and started washing the blood and brains off of the limousine. How outrageous is this? Jeez. This is uh, destruction of evidence at the scene. And here you have a, a, a photograph of the motorcade. Uh, this was not at the time, of course, because there was quite a bit of blood and mess and there were roses strewn. Uh, Jackie was given red roses here. Uh, Nellie was given yellow elsewhere in Texas because of the song, The Yellow Rose of Texas. She'd been given yellow roses, but here red, red was a sign. Do not touch, do not harm Jabby Kennedy. That was part of the instruction. Red indicated, of course, where she was sitting beside her husband, who was the target. Now, here's a whole movie. There's a Bruder film. It's only 27 seconds. But well, it's 487 frames or more frames missing from the film than available now because that turn from Houston on to Elm and you'll see the big jump when you get Houston, all of a sudden the motorcade is already by the stem and freeway sign. Big jump because it would have shaken the confidence of the American people if they saw this mess up on the turn. But then the whole business after bringing the limousine to a halt, they had to get rid of it. So they actually combined those two shots to the back of the head. Because when he's hit the back of the head, he slops forward, then Jackie is him back up and he's looking him right in the face when he's hit the right temple. Take a look then at the, the edited, the version we have today. Uh, uh, Jim, I just want to interrupt for one second. I, I know I said this before, but anyone listening, if you can go to YouTube, as Jim's talking, he has different clips and videos and sketches. So you got to check it out on YouTube. Yep, absolutely right. Yes, yes, yes. 
and as we will discover, uh, John P. Costello, who's a PhD in physics like David Manning, but his PhD is in electromagnetism. He's an expert on the properties of light and images of moving objects. He did a study of internal, just internal to the film and found evidence that was 98% technically impeccable that there's a 2% to give it away, including the Simmons freeway sign here as I'll show is put in the wrong position. Now, here they have merged in this shot. They actually merged oh. together the shot to the back of the head and the, and the shot to the right temple. And you get this back into the left motion that nobody saw in Dealey Plaza for the reason that it didn't actually occur. So here's one more. Look at the big jump. Look at the spectators, yeah. by the way, how they're motionless. Right. Everywhere right. else are wildly cheering. Look, that's because they edited the film in such a way they created a new foreground to combine with the background. Yeah, frame 313, boom, splat. And of course, that actually is not the way it happened, but that is the way it was portrayed to the public. Is that oh. colorized? Am I used to seeing that in black and white? Or what was it? Well, what you, 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 you may, no, it's not been colorized. It was oh, originally okay. filmed. It was uh, filmed in, uh, in, in a, a, a high stock color uh, okay. film. Of, of Kodak at the time. And then it was processed at the Kodak lab in uh, Dallas. And they claimed to make an original in three, but there's a missing first copy. And I believe that was sold to H.L. Hunt for a hundred grand. So he actually got the first copy and he was one of the promoters of the assassination. He was handing out handbills in Dallas the day before of JFK wanted for trees and with mug shots. A Madeline mistress and Linton boasted he'd had more women by accident than, than JFK had on purpose. And I believe it was true. <laughs> Madeline, who began an affair with him in 1948, when she was a young advertising executive and a bore him a son, Stephen, in 1950, was a young advertising executive at a bank where HL had, had an office. And she came out in the parking lot the day before and HL showed her this handbill. And she said, why, HL, you can't do that. And he said, well, I sure can. I'm the richest man in the world. I can do anything I want. And he proceeded to distribute his handbills, wanted for treason all over Dallas. So, you know, you can find him online without any yeah. effort. Now, the fact Joe, is, it was yeah. a very, very elaborate conspiracy where you had eight different major parties, each of whom yeah. seemed to put up their own shooter. I mean, that's part of the fascinating aspect of this is that we have a, a very mixed bag who are the different shooters, even including yeah. Lyndon Johnson's own, own uh, hit man, Malcolm Mac Wallace, who had murdered a dozen people for Lyndon, including one of his own sisters, because she wow. talked too much. So Lyndon had her <laughs> whacked. So now, I, I mean- Yeah. Now, Joe, I, I've seen this as a brutal film a bunch of times. I don't remember that headshot being so brutal, do you? Oh, no, right? Also, even the angle, it almost looked like it was coming straight down. Just the way the way yeah. it hits, I don't like anything about this, Doctor Fetzer. It all looks very. <laughs> yeah, well, shady we're gonna to me. we're gonna we're gonna go through it in all detail. So you know, <laughs> we, we we may have more than we can pack into today's show, but you're gonna I know. Be and yeah, one of the ahead. things is we like conspiracies, Jedi, myself, and Joe. But this is what you do, right? You yeah, study yeah, this, you talk yeah, to yeah, people, yeah, you, you yeah. rule things out. I got. To, I got 30 years on JFK, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's keep I going. I mean, 30 years of serious research. I, I was, of course, 
I, look, I graduated from Princeton in 1962. JFK was president when I was in the Marine Corps, right? I was anchored out at Kaohsiung Harbor aboard the LVAG Wajima, which is a landing platform helicopter. It's a carrier with a shallow hull because choppers just take off vertically. They don't need a long, stable platform like fixed wing aircraft. When I was awakened at 3.30 in the morning by the officer at the deck, who was the executive officer of the mortar battery, of which I was the fire direction officer, to tell me JFK had been shot. And then an hour later, he awakened me. And just as Joe was observing how quick, he said, they caught the guy who did it. He was a communist. And I thought then that was pretty fast work. Yeah. But as we're going to discover, they wrote the arrest re report for him before they'd even arrested him. I mean, I tell you, this is really stunning stuff when you get deep into it. Yeah. And, you know. Can I ask you just a side question? Because uh, none of us was born. The three of us were all born after, <laughs> after the assassination. No, I'm not even trying to say like you're older, but I I'm curious as someone who loves history and loves these kind of conspiracies. What was it like to find out the president of the United States had been assassinated? That's like crazy to think about. Well, at the time, as I say, I was in the Far East. So, you know, I spent uh, 13 months in the Far East. We had, we were based on Okinawa. We had training in Japan twice, uh, Korea, uh, Formosa, R&R &R in the Philippines and Hong Kong. Um, the military wasn't political, the Marine Corps least political of all. And I think at the time, I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all the communication. So we'd only get gradual and piecemeal information. I, uh, at the time, you know, and I recall very clearly thinking that was pretty fast work, but it would take me years and years to sort out exactly why. So that when I returned to the United States in June of 1964, where I was then assigned to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot at San Diego as a serious commander, where I had 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command going through the train cycle. And then we'd pick up a new series and a new series and a new series. Uh, then I began doing more research. I picked up a book by a guy named Josiah Thompson because I'd majored in philosophy because I figured I would probably actually, after debating between law and uh, the academy, becoming a professor that I was going to take the academic option. He was a professor at, then at uh, Haverford. He'd been a UDT. I was a uh, Marine Corps. I felt an affinity with this guy. I would later at a conference drink scotch with him, you know, in his, his room afterward to tell him how much I admired him. He would turn out to be a rat. He would turn out he was a guy who was actually infiltrating. He was a limited hangout like Robert Grodin. In fact, the two greatest swindlers in JFK are Josiah Thompson and Robert Grodin. And I tell you, I have outed so many phonies and frauds in JFK. It's unbelievable. The government makes a point. They've done something similar, but with a different approach in 9-11. Uh, because there you have, there were three groups in 9-11 who were doing research. Uh, uh, Judy Wood, I founded Scholars for 9-11 Truth in December of uh, 2005, and, and I brought together hundreds of experts from all over the world. We were actually out to get the truth. There were two alternative movements, one Judy Wood and her dues and architects and engineers led by Richard Grage, and they were both, it turned out, limited hangouts. Now, we can go into this in great detail, but for example, neither Judy Wood nor architects and engineers would even talk about who was responsible and why.
So, I, and the point I'm making is in, in, in 9 11, there are really two limited hangout groups to diverse, uh, you know, split opinion and leave everything up in the air. They gave both inadequate explanation of what had happened to the Twin Towers and would not discuss who was responsible and why neither of them to this day will discuss who was responsible and why. Now, in JFK, it was totally different. You had, I've outed over a different, a dozen different individuals and groups. I mean, I was publishing about this extensively and laying out exactly how you could tell what was going on here. So it's kind of a, 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 a more wild west thing, but then the CIA intervened, you see, to try to suppress serious research by those who are poking major holes, people like Mark Lane and Harold Weisberg and even Jim Garrison were poking major holes in the official narrative. So they began attacking everyone as a conspiracy theorist. And it was meant to imply that unless you had all the answers to all the questions you shouldn't be taken seriously, it was meant to imply you were merely speculating or engaging in rumors or guesses, because that's a weak sense of theorizing speculation, rumors, or guesses, which is why what I do is to take conspiracy theories from theories in the weak sense of speculations, rumors, or guesses to theories in the strong sense of empirically testable explanatory propositions. And that's why I liken them to, you know, uh, Newton's theory of gravity, Einstein's theory of relativity, and uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. So, the fact is the CIA sought to put a, a, a suppression here and offer techniques to attack. They've got nothing new. They're financially motivated. You know, uh, they just grandstanding want to get attention themselves. That was not true of any of these, uh, nor is it true of those of us who are exposing Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, Uvalde, Buffalo, you name it. Because since my retirement after a 35 year career, but more recently, too, I mean, that was in 2006 when I moved here to Madison. Uh, to, actually, it's a small town just south of Madison. But I was continuing my JFK research, and I, I began it at the, well, I was on the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota and published a couple of books and had a couple of conferences with university funding, mind you, with university funding. I held a conference in 1999 in Minneapolis. So, on the death of JFK. And, and Jedi mentioned my first book, Assassination Science, 1998. That led to the publication of Murder in Dealey Plaza, 2000. Then I did another, a, a mini conference on the Duluth campus on, on the Zapruder film. And that led to the, film, the, the book, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax. And those three shattered the cover up. And once you shatter the cover up, it's very easy to sort out what actually happened. That's why they go about manufacturing all this for fake evidence and all that, uh, you become a bit of a past master at sorting these things out when you reach a certain point, you know, and I, I, I'm far beyond that. But I'll tell you, JFK, I mean, we're talking about the greatest murder mystery in history. And because of more recent developments that I'm going to explain here that have occurred since those three public books were published, I have a an additional fourth book, JFK, Who, How, and Why, on, on the latest developments, which include the proof that Lee was in the doorway, which, by the way, Harold Weisberg already was talking about, that the, in his second book, he had a whole series called Whitewash, and in his second volume, 1967, Photographic Whitewash, 
in the last few pages, he was talking about how the Warren Commission staff was having a terrible time suppressing information that Lee Oswald was actually in the doorway of the book depository when the motorcade passed by. But what we've done is just refine it and prove it scientifically. The height, the weight, the build, the shirt, the t-shirt of the man in the doorway uh, versus the height, the weight, the build, the shirt and the t-shirt Lee was wearing when he was arrested. And then Larry Rivera, who's been doing absolutely brilliant cutting edge research, fixed the facial features of the man in the doorway and compared them with, oh, the candidate of the Warren Commission, which is a guy named Billy Lovelady, who himself said he thought it was odd they'd be confused because he was two to three inches shorter and 15 to 20, I dare say, a lot more heavier and was actually wearing a completely different shirt because the FBI had him come in on February 29th of 1964 for an interview to wear the same shirt he wore at the time. And it was a short sleeve, red and white, vertically striped shirt, looked nothing like the long sleeve, tattered and torn shirt on the man in the doorway. Now, Billy turns out to have been beside, standing near Lee Oswald in the doorway, holding his hands up to protect his eyes from the sun, but they blacked out his face. We're gonna go through this. We, we blacked out his face so you couldn't tell who it was. And they did other alterations in this area of the doorway to obfuscate the fact that Lee was there. But even Jim Garrison, for example, you know, always was convinced Lee was in the doorway. So, so what we have simply done is to provide scientific confirmation that that indeed was the case, which throws the whole thing in a cocked hat as far as the official. Joe, you've got a question I can tell. Yeah, so I guess what I was going to, because this is all fascinating, and I I understand there's a lot of reason to think a lot of people, and I know a lot of organizations have been involved. I saw something like uh, 82 people have been accused of being additional assassins in the case, but my my biggest proof that Oswald was definitely, a, I mean, he shot Officer Tippett. You're told he was shot, Officer Tippett. Officer Tippett was shot uh, three times in the torso and then once in the right temple when he was lying on the ground. Aquila Clemens, who was there, said two men shot Tippett and neither of them looked like Oswald. Not only that, but the first officer on the scene secured four shell casings and they were of two different manufacturers and they both had come from automatics. Oswald didn't have an automatic, he had a revolver. Revolvers don't automatically eject their shell casings. There were two from Remington Rand and two from Western. That, that strongly suggests two different shooters just as Aquila Clemens claimed. The whole story about Oswald going there, he, if you look at a route from his rooming house where he went to the Texas theater to get over where Tippett was shot, you gotta go way out of your way in the opposite direction. I mean, it's just a fantasy. Not only that, but he planted an Oswald wallet well, he had his wallet with him when he was arrested, but they had a second wallet. How many of us carry two different wallets, right? And they also found a jacket they attributed to Oswald. It was all planted. It's, it's very interesting, the whole Tippett thing. Uh, 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 a New York researcher by the name of Robert Morningstar believes Tippett was shot because Tippett bore a resemblance to JFK. Well, I have the Tippett autopsy stuff and frankly doesn't look that much like JFK. And while they did have a body that they used for some maybe of the after autopsy, the shooting. Say again? I said maybe after the shooting there was well, that, that's the point that's the point he's making though. He, he he was saying that he looked so much like JFK they want to use a body as a double for autopsy. 
Oh, but, oh gotcha. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and that he was shot in the te- right temple. Jesse James right. was shot in the right temple. It makes that semi-plausible. It's just that there's some photographs where he looks all, more like JFK than others. So while well, I'm a huge fan of Robert Morningstar, I think he's wrong on this. And we have photographs of the guy who's a body double in the morgue, and it's not, it's not Tippett. I, I have Tippett's. In fact, we're cleaning out my my storage area here at my home. And I when we moved down here in 2005, I had to pack up a whole lot of stuff about JFK current research, which I had all the Tippett autopsy stuff, including the photographs, and I put it in these very large plastic containers. Well, they were blocked. They've been blocked ever since I moved down here in 2006. Uh, by the time we, if we do this again, I will have probably have had access and I can actually show you the autopsy yeah. photographs. It, it was not well, tipping, but, but that was why Morningstar speculated. Uh, why Tippett was taken out isn't completely clear. He may have just known a little too much, but uh, there, are more, there are more stories here. Yeah. Uh, to tell, but, but Lee didn't shoot him. He went to the Texas theater. He was meeting his handler. They had another guy look like uh, Oswald there, by the way. And Oswald was supposed to try to make an escape out the back and they were going to shoot him dead on the spot. Instead, he put up a fight and he said, immediately, uh, he said, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not resisting arrest. I'm surrendering, blah, blah, blah. And they took him out and they arrested him and all the falls were raw. But I mean, he, he, he may or may not have been part of a team that was trying to disrupt the assassination. I, to me, this is an area of uncertainty. He did know of a certain amount, but look, he was so naive that the best stories I have is that, Tim, that Oswald was actually in the lunchroom when everyone else was going out to the front of the book depository and he figured, what's going on here? So he wandered on out. You see him kind of leaning out to see what's going on because he didn't even know the motorcade was coming by. I mean, I'm telling you, it was that bad. Oswald was set up. The whole damn uh, a guy named Bird, B-Y-R-D, owned the book depository. It appears the whole thing was a CIA front, just as there was a uranium mining operation in the Daltex, from which three shots were fired from a Mandlicker Carcano to create the acoustical impression of only three shots being fired which was a CIA asset too. So, I mean, the, the CIA aspect in setting it up is quite considerable, but this was Lyndon Johnson's territory, you know, Dallas, this is backyard. The Campbell brothers, the mayor of Dallas was a brother of uh, Charles Campbell, whom JFK had dismissed from the CIA after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Uh, it, I mean, you know, and the, the brothers would have thought he was a traitor to the country. I mean, for God's sake, the mayor's brother being dismissed. He was an icon in the intel community. You know, Alan Dulles was director. He would retire him with fanfare. But he was getting them out because they deceived him. So, I mean, it's there's so many fascinating aspects yeah. of this. The deeper you dig, yeah, go, go ahead. Go, go, go. Talk. I got one more for you. This is, uh, yeah. again, you mentioned the getting shot in the temple. What do you know about the photographs of JFK's brain? Have you seen those? You know, the ones I'm talking about where some people are like, that's not enough damage for the head wound that he got. And oh, so sure. I got it. I got it all in here. Yeah. Want to talk about that for a hot minute? Because that's, again, another fact. I mean, why lie about why would the government lie about that unless they were hiding something? And why was yeah. his no, brain no, no. stolen? 
This, this, uh, yeah, they substitute another brain for JFK. I mean, I got a world authority on the human brain in my book, <laughs> Assassination Science. He's reporting this is not the brain of JFK. How do we know? Well, he had to have his brains blown out of Dealey Plaza, but more specifically, you had physician after physician at Parkland. I mean, six, right? I've got it all here. Oh, so reporting. It's, it's in the Sarah. upcoming slides. Is it oh, the yeah. upcoming? All right, all right. So, oh, yeah. so we'll eventually get to that. No, oh, yeah, well, I had a we question. will. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I just want to know, Joe, you might even know this. So, like, what did people in Texas think of JFK? I'm just kind of curious because from Massachusetts, liberal, and, and LBJ, what he got him because for the vice president because he's from Texas? Uh, the people love JFK. The politicians, the business guys, the oilmen hated JFK. He was threatening to cut their oil depletion allowances, a huge tax write-off they got on the specious ground that they were Oil was a finite resource to pump it out of ground. They were putting themselves out of business. I mean, it was fanciful. We know today oil is a natural product of Earth. There's an unlimited amount of oil that's produced by Earth. Even most Americans don't even know this, but it is the case. It's not a fossil fuel. It's not a residual of a dinosaur's dying. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd have to have a hell of a lot of dinosaurs to have all the, the oil that we've yeah. already pumped out of the ground, right? So that... that it's a part of the global the climate change myth because CO2 has nothing to do with the temperature of the earth over 600 million years. There's been no correlation between the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the temperature of earth. And if there's no correlation, there's no causation. Even when there is a correlation like vax and autism or smoking and cancer, the industries go out of their way to argue that even though there's a correlation, there's no causation. Well, yeah. that's pretty hard to... To, to, to justify when, if you have more vax, you have more autism, you have less vax, you have less autism. I mean, it's pretty damn obvious. And the, it was smoking and cancer. They put up the fight forever, but now of course there's general concession. <laughs> All right, I, I see. Let's get to the slides before we go down. <laughs> <We're done. laughs> a lot of rabbit holes. Yeah, there's exactly. A there's a lot, there's a lot. Yeah, you're Joe, absolutely right. Joe, when we, just, when we just got to that autism vax, I'm like, let's move on with Jim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Now, there was a, there was a misprinting when they published the Warren Commission. Uh, if you look at the, the speed of the limousine and the, Warren, and the Mormon and Hill, these are, there were about eight different uh, uh, videos or films taken of the motorcade. And if they average the speed of the vehicle, it's between eight and 10 miles an hour, which is far below the Secret Service requires you should never drive lower than 30 miles an hour because otherwise the president is too much of a target. Well, they reordered the sequence of the films in the frame, 313, 14, 15, 16, they switched the order. So instead you had 313 to 315 to 314 to 316, which minimized the back into the lab, which was actually an effect of the excessive editing of films. Now, here you see that motion from 312 to 313, there's forward motion of Jack's head in response to the hit to the back of the head. Now, remember, Jack was wearing a massive back brace. It was like a corset. It was cinched up very tight. And that meant he had very limited mobility. So when he was hit in the back of the head, he slumped forward. But the only residue after they edited the film of the, the slumping forward where Jackie used it back up was from frame 312 to 313. Because beginning at 313, they, they push him back. 
So here you see going straight up to 312, see the numbers of frames on the left, and you have that forward motion, and then it's back into the left. You see kind of like a whipsaw motion. But actually, he didn't display that in Dealey Plaza. That was a result of film editing. Now, the first time any frames were shown were in Life magazine. In Life, I'm sorry to say, was complicit in the cover-up. They took some films. Uh, they they tried to use, and this this is the you know frame 313, claiming that it could establish a direction with which bullets were fired, which is dubious. I mean, after all, you got to have at least two points to draw a straight line, and here you're talking about one point in time, right? Not two. But the fact is, they in order to get the right description of the wound, see there number six, the direction from which shots came was established by this picture taking uh, as the uh, uh, bullet mm. hit the rear of the president's head passing through, uh, carried the front part of his head to explode forward. Right. Well, that's actually the blob. You see, this is an artifact. They seem to have moved the actual bullet at the back of the head and moved it around to make it look as though it came out the front. But when Jackie testified to the Warren Commission, she said, from the front, you know, he looked just fine, but that she had a terrible time holding his brains and skull together at the back of his head. Well, they actually split the plate here twice, not once, but twice. Now, in publishing, every copy of Life magazine comes off of one set of plates. In this case, because they wanted to revise how they describe this frame, number six, they broke it not once, which is uh, extraordinary, but twice, which is unprecedented. I'll bet in the, in the history of publishing, there's never been a case of a, a plate being broken twice. So there are many indications how this and other films have been edited, including the all but motionless spectators, a driver's head turned twice as fast as humanly possibly looks back, then he looks forward. The blob and blood spray, which we're going to track, which appear to have been painted in blood and brains across the Trump and the drivers pulling to the left and bringing the vehicle to a halt had to be removed because it was such an obvious indication of Secret Service complicity in setting up JFK for the hit. Now, colors can be broken down into red, green, and blue. And this is just showing the frames of 313, how you get the color pattern here. They show the spray disappearing within three frames. Now that would be one sixth of a second because these frames were supposed to be taken at 18 frames per second, which wasn't actually a setting on the camera. It was 24 or you could do it in slow motion, which would be 48. So they claimed, and it's I'm convinced it's because they removed so many frames that it actually was being taken at 18 frames a second. But the point is it disappears within three frames. Now that couldn't happen. Even if you dropped a lead weight from JFK's temple, it wouldn't drop into the car that fast. So the, the spray couldn't have been moving so fast that it disappeared out of view before frame 314. But even if the blood could have, where would it have ended up? It would have gone all over the Connollys, the windows, the interior of the limo, but a frame published only weeks after showed no blood at all. Look how clear that back of the trunk. Jackie's actually starting to go after a big chunk of Jack's skull and brains that was on the trunk. That's why she got up. As though it were not bad enough, when the government reported, the Warren Report of 64, another frame was published that showed no blood. 
just a huge bloodless wound in the president's head. Now, what they've done is they blacked out the back of JFK's head. I go into that fairly extensively. Look, look how crudely. You can virtually tell just by looking that's been blacked out. In fact, there's a group of Hollywood restoration experts who've been studying a very high quality version of the film and they're just stunned by the amateur way in which they blacked out the back of the head at JFK. Internal inconsistencies. The head wound cannot be observed in early frames, but it occurred to me that maybe though they blacked it out in early frames, it would be visible in later and I found it in frame 374. Larry Rivera, whom I mentioned, discovered it's actually outlined by Jackie's white gloves. So you here you have 312. This is before the fatal headshot, right? Then you have 313. Well, wow. beginning with three. Go ahead. Yeah, tell That's me. That's brutal. Yeah, wow. well, but but it, but it's it's mostly an artifact. This this is this is mostly you know a, 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 a painted depiction. Then you have 314. Notice the back of the head is dark. 315. Back of the head is dark. You can kind of see how black. And you see this kind of whitish thing there? That actually is an artifact. You see, it's starting to show up here. Here you can see it more distinctly. They move it around. It's referred to as the blob. Because remember, Jackie said from the front, he looked just fine. Well, that's not consistent with a blob. There you see more of the blob. It's just being moved around. I think it was actually from the back of the head, if you could see it, but they moved it forward. Now here you got Jackie climbing out. This is where I discovered Looky here, see Jack there? What is that? We have to look more closely. And when you look more closely, you can actually see the blowout. Now this pink thing is a skull flap that is blown open because there was a, an explosive bullet. Now th this may have been the third shot David thinks was fired from the side that hit about the same time as the bullet hit the right temple and blew his brains out the back. And you can see this opening here, right? That's a gray matter. Remember, we've referred to brains as gray matter. Well, there's a reason because cerebellar tissue is gray in its visual appearance. So here's a closer up look. Uh, I, I found this in frame 374. And when you, you learn how they, they altered the x-rays and David was able to identify the area they patched, you'll find a very close proximity. So here you have before the fatal, then after the fatal and moving, but here you have the actual wound can be seen in 374. Now, here is the autopsy x-ray taken from the right side on the left. Now, David Mantig, who's not only a PhD in physics, but board certified in radiation oncology, which is a treatment of cancer using x-ray therapy. So he's an expert in interpreting x-rays believe the degree of contrast here was too great between, between dark and light, that there should be a degree of contrast, but here it's overwhelmingly greater than it ought to be. Now, in uh, uh, late December uh, 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 1992, he entered the National Archives with the permission of the Kennedy family attorney, Burke Marshall, uh, of the Yale Law School to study the autopsy x-rays. And because of his background in physics, he was able to use a technique known as optical densitometry that by measuring the amount of light that passes through an x-ray, you can determine the relative density of the objects whose exposure led to the creation of the image. And he discovered by hundreds of minute measurements, and David was highly myopic at the time, which was for 
uh, serendipitous because it made it much easier for him to conduct this extremely tedious research. He defined this area P as material that was far too dense to be human bone. So that unless the back of JFK's skull was nothing but solid bone, unless JFK was a bonehead, this was not a natural phenomenon, but represented a, a patch. That's why he called it area P. Well, if you compare area P for the patch to the area blowed out, notice how similar it is, except that there's JFK hair hanging down to obscure, but it's a very close resemblance. Now, Larry discovered Jackie's glove actually highlights the massiveness of the de defect in JFK's skull. Notice how abnormal it is. He should have a head that extends through most of that area where you can see the white glove. So here you have her left hand, you see her right hand. She had white gloves on both, of course. But the fact is, it demarcates the blowout at the back of the head. I mean, this just doesn't leave any doubt about it. I thought it was brilliant when Larry discovered this. Here's a blowout enhanced by Blender. It allows you to give a three-dimensional, and you can see this was a major, major defect there in the skull. Meanwhile, the sign was wrongly replaced. They took out the Simmons Freeway sign in the original, apparently because it had a bullet hole in it, and that wouldn't do with the number of shots they were claiming to have been fired. So we get a comparison of photos of the location and dimensions of the Simmons Freeway sign was replaced by images they put in the wrong location, which demonstrates the sign was placed into the revised film without taking into consideration the optical distortion of the camera's lens. Now, John Costello has done a brilliant job. Uh, you see those varying lines. All these lines ought to be parallel, but notice they're not parallel. You're gonna see exactly how it was done. Here you see the misplacement. You can see where it is in the film versus where it was, which is the black and white, where it really was. And you can see how it's misplaced in the film. Now, here we have a GIF showing you how they made this mistake. And it, it's not because the sign per se is intrinsically interesting, because it's, but because it's conclusive proof of the editing of the film. To this day, for example, Robert Grodin and Josiah Thompson insist the film is unaud un unedited, unaltered. That is the closest thing to absolute truth we have about the assassination, which is complete and utter bullshit. I mean, how in the face of proof like this, could you continue to make that assertion is because a lot of people are gullible. A lot of people think Josiah Thompson and Robert Grodin are the cat's meow, the last word on JFK, when that's far removed from the truth. Now, everywhere else in the motorcade, spectators were waving and cheering, but during this portion of motorcade, they were virtually motionless. The explanation appears to be that the foreground was taken when the pilot car passed and they substituted it for something they didn't want you to see when the actual shooting was taking place. I mean, wild cheering crowds everywhere, everywhere. And yet you'll see now as we play again, there's a Pruder film, a point I made before, namely the crowd is simply not reacting. And they're not reacting because it wasn't taken when the JFK car was passing, but rather the pilot car, which was well out in front. So just notice, no one there is reacting the way they ought to be. Yeah, your comments are most welcome. Joe yeah, yeah, so Dr. 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 Fetcher, as the car drives by, nobody follows it. 
nobody follows their car passing in front of them. They're all still kind of looking to the left. Like Very JFK's good. car is driving by. Why wouldn't you be following that? I don't know. Hey, you're course. exactly right. Of Look course. at these people. Of course. Of course, that's very good, Joe. Very good. I'm with you, sir. I like this. <laughs> yeah, look at nobody's, nobody's, they should all be turning to the right as the motorcade right. passes. Well, well, not only that, Joe, but look at this. If this is a handheld camera and Zapruder's taking it, why doesn't he keep the, the motorcade, the vehicle, centered? Notice how we have it disappear to the bottom. Uh, I'm convinced that this was because that part of the film was taken from a tripod and because it was on a tripod, it didn't go with a car as would have been done had it been in the handheld cameras of Bruder. So see, it's all but disappearing. Yep. You're filming yeah. the president of the United States with a handheld camera. You're not going to let the vehicle disappear. So th this is just further <laughs> proof of what we're yeah. up against here and how massively the editing. I'll show it one more time. No, two Two yeah, things ahead. I want to say is if you're interested in JFK, definitely go over to YouTube because you won't see the videos and the, all the stuff that Jim has here. And the other thing is, I, the thing I don't agree with, Jim, is they, they can't be going 30 miles an hour right here. They have to be going as slow as they are with all the, the, the cop car, the, the motorcycles and stuff. That wouldn't be normal for them to be going 30, would it? You, you misunderstood my point. It was Secret Service protocol that the presidential limousine should never go lower than 30. I was showing the average here was 10 or 11 miles in yeah. it. Right. <laughs> so that was a violation of Secret Service protocol. It's another indication how they set him up. I, I mean, it's very hard, very hard to hit a moving object. And they actually weren't very successful. You had the shot in the back. You had the shot to the throat. But that's because that was shot from inside the triple underpass, and it's virtually on the horizontal, the limousine coming toward you, so it's a steady target. The shot to the back, that was fired from the top of the county records building, and I mean, you just hit him in the back. The idea was to implant a Mandiker Carcano bullet that they actually used, a 30-06, with a plastic collar that's called a Sabo, to implant this bullet in JFK's back to implicate the weapon they were using they were going to actually make a substitution. They found a man liquor carcano in the book depository, but they substituted the one that was being fired from the Dow Techs for that when they made the transfer of the evidence to Washington, D.C. Now, do you Is think it, they- Time they out, plan wait. What, what evidence do you have for what you just said, Dr. Fetcher? Because if you have that, that's crazy what you just said. Is there evidence oh, of that? Yeah. Yeah, Jack White did a huge amount. You know, he found the three different Carcanos that were involved in this. But look, 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 look. The, uh, the Lee Oswald weapon was in such terrible condition that no one would even test fire it until it was rebuilt. It had an offset sc scope. Uh, the mechanism, it would jam if you try to work a bolt action. Uh, the man liquor they actually used in the Dow Texas was in good condition. Uh, Jesse Ventura had me set him up to do an attempt to replicate, and he had a really good condition man liquor, and and I positioned, made sure the bales of hay were positioned the right distances and angles from Jeffy on a lift, and Jeffy Jesse ran three replications which I timed with a Scott uh, stopwatch, to try to get it in the six seconds that were supposed to have been used. He ran three replications. He hit 
one of the targets once with three replications of three rounds. Out of nine rounds, he hit one target once, and they weren't even moving. They were just stationary. I'd be able to say, hey. Wow. So, I mean, wow. yeah, the whole idea, I mean, it was all said to be a fantastic piece of marksmanship. Well, it wasn't. It was just a fantasy. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. So before we get back to some more slides, I want to know now, did, do you think they planned it to have the shots happen right after that sharp turn where you couldn't be going fast? No, no, they were going to go slow anyway. In fact, as I say, they actually pulled it to a halt because they couldn't kill him when he was moving. So they made him a stationary target. Right. They, uh, the, whole, the whole plot, Ted, was to change the motorcade route. So they brought him into the kill zone where all the assassins would have opportunities to take him out. And I mean, I'll show you where they were all located yeah. and the shots yeah. they took and the effects. But I mean, you know, it, so was, a turkey, yeah. it, was, a, it was a turkey shoot yeah. set up by the Secret Service. So if the Secret Service was involved, they made like the bad mistake of going having to go slow and stuff. It was all part of the plan. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. All part of the plan. Absolutely 100%. Here's something you don't know, and it's not actually in, in, in this slide set, but Sam Kinney, who was one of the Secret Service agents, found that bullet that had hit, he'd been hit in the back. It was a shallow shot, only a bit as, about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger in the limousine. And he took it inside Parkland and put it on a scratcher. So the magic bullet was found by Sam Kinney. It was a shot that hit Jack in the back, and he just took it in. It, it became such a big deal. He made a neighbor promise not to reveal the facts until after he was dead. But that's 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 where the magic bullet came from. Would you believe if Oliver Stone did a redo of, of JFK Revisited? It was all about the magic bullet. He doesn't even know that Sam Kinney found the bullet. There was no magic bullet. He didn't even ask David Mantake, who took a patient with similar chest and neck dimensions at JFK and, and, and tracked the official trajectory and found it's not even anatomically possible because cervical vertebrae intervene. He didn't even include that in his JFK revisit about the magic bullet. He had Doug Horn, who, who was a member of the Assassination Records Review Board and got, you know, just did massive depositions about the medical evidence, absolutely brilliant stuff. He's got uh, five, five uh, volumes. Uh, Doug Horn published. This one, uh, part four, is all about mm -hmm. this is a Bruder film. But even when Oliver Stone had these two really good experts, David Mandhick and Doug Horn, two of the best. I mean, I'd put them in the top five in the world, right? They didn't ask him the right questions. Whether about the magic bull or anything else, these guys have done sensational work. Doug, Doug Horn about this is a Bruder film about how the swap was made, that the original was brought in Saturday and then the substitution was made on Sunday. Didn't even ask. It was, it, in other words, this new Oliver Stone thing is, is worthless. In fact, it's two hours. We did a, a four-parter. We took a half an hour talk about it, half an hour. I'm doing this called the new JFK show with Larry Barbera and Gary King. And we took Oliver Stone's film and broke it into four half-hour segments so we could show this segment and then dissect it. It's useless. It's useless. I did my review of the evidence in advance of Oliver. He was going to release this on the 22nd. I released mine on the 18th, and I sent it to Oliver. And you mm -hmm. compare. There's no, I mean, Oliver's is useless. Whereas I'm distilling all the work of all these experts I've been working with for all these years, and it just blows yeah. the whole case out of the water. Yeah, Joe, all don't you his... think? Yeah, Joe, don't you Go think ahead. there's no no doubt that like 
if you want to research JFK, you can't find any better information than from Jim. No, yeah, <laughs> my God. Well, listen, this, this, the the conspiracy behind his assassination. I mean, that started pretty early in this, where people kind of weren't buying it. But obviously, oh, that's why right after set up. Well, the but I'm explaining. But I'm explaining why. Because if you were watching television, you know there were two shots of the throat into the right temple that were reported that day. And then the Warren Commission comes out there and said there are only three shots all fired from above and behind. So there was this gross inconsistency from the beginning. If you just went back and watched, see it now, NBC broadcasts that day. Uh, Frank McGee, who is nobody's fool, you won't know him because he was an earlier generation, right? Toward the end of the evening, when they're being told the FBI and the Secret Service have concluded that all the shots were fired by a lone assassin above and behind, says, this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? Because he would have been there while they were reporting the shot to the throat and the shot to the right temple. And now they're being told, as they're giving live reporting on the air, they're being told the FBI and the Secret Service has concluded there were only three shots all from above and behind. He says, this is in Congress, in Congress indeed. So, I mean, you know, they, they fake were- Fake news. <laughs> they were, yeah, they were just, right, fake news, absolutely. They were just trying to cover it up from the beginning, but the, they, what they didn't know was that the mainstream was already giving accurate reporting of the medical evidence from the Parkland press conference about the shot to the throat and from, and, and from, uh, from Malcolm Perry, and then you had the head of neurology, and you had the president's personal physician, and you had the acting press secretary by the shot at the right temple. I mean, look how brazen they are in covering it up. You got the acting press secretary, Macklin Keldeff, saying the president was killed by simple shot of a matter right through the head, pointing to his right temple, and they tell us all the shots were fired from above and behind. I mean, that takes a certain chutzpah. This is yeah. nervy. Yeah. This is just bullshit. And th this is one reason I think the American people have become so disbelieving of the government about any count. This is one of the great credits I give to Donald Trump. He called out the fake news media. Well, they've been fake for a long time, just as Jedi was saying, fake news right there on 22 November 1963. But it's persisted to this day and beyond. We're getting nothing but bullshit from the media and they're all massively controlled. I mean, it's just horrific. All right, so oh. the, so before we get to some slides, I'm just curious, um, is this a major part of your day every day? Are you huge into this or just when you come on podcast? Are you constantly researching JFK? Is this your number one thing? Uh, I, I have already done so much on JFK that I do. We're doing. We're resuming our once a week new JFK show. It's a one hour show. I interrupted it because I did a course, an online course, on critical thinking and conspiracy theories. I had like forty students, yeah. and it was great to get back in the classroom. And I went through. Well, it was fifteen weeks, one hour a week. Though usually it ran a little over. And I spent the first several weeks inculcating principles of critical thinking, common fallacies, how, how to reason scientifically. Uh, actually, I began more generally with language, the nature of language and mind, and then, then talking about reasoning and how to analyze and then applied it 
JFK 9-11, well, well, did we do Wellstone, uh, the moon landing, mm -hmm. you know. I didn't include their Boston bombing yet. Boston bombing is one of the easiest and simplest. So I did have one class where they were looking at, I've got a two-parter called uh, How to Spot a False Flag, where I'm covering maybe 10 different cases, including Parkland and Las Vegas and Boston and Sandy Hook. You can learn so much just from how to spot a false flag. Now, they've taken down my blog. They did it today. And that's because it's such a vast repository about Sandy Hook. And they knew with the Alex Jones trial going on, and he's mentioned, they mentioned me in the book I edited, uh, Nobody Died at Sandy Hook several times now. Well, that would generate a lot of interest. But I have a whole lot of accurate information. I published a 440-page book blowing Sandy Hook out of the water. I had 13 contributors, six PhDs. You think six PhDs couldn't figure out whether the school was still open? It had been closed by 2008. There weren't any students there. There weren't any students ever, anybody to shoot. I mean, it was just so absurd. It's so absurd. They conducted a FEMA drill. We even yeah. found the FEMA manual. I put it in the book. And then they presented it as mass murder to promote gun control. This is a Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Eric Holder op to brainwash the American people. It was set up well in advance. But then the, why, the didn't, city, why didn't, the then city, why didn't the they city, come get the guns? Why didn't they just ban guns right then and there after, or after those kids died? Why, why wouldn't they have just come and done it then? Why would they need another dozen false flag operations that me, makes me, zero let, sense let me to me let me answer that in two ways just weeks before the mayor of boston went on a show called greater boston that's hosted by andy rooney's daughter and he was boasting about his relationship with joe biden it was at the time of course vice president and he explained now, Biden had assured him that by January 2013, gun control would be a done deal. And she said, what? what in the world could happen to cause legislation to pass so fast? He would not answer the question, of course. But it was Sandy Hook. Eric Holder went to Connecticut on the 27th of November. He met with a governor and told him what they were going to do. They're going to take an abandoned school and promote, you know, conduct a drill and present as mass murder to promote gun control. Now, a month and two days later, on January 16th, Barack Obama signed 23 executive orders to restrain our access to weapons under the Second Amendment. 23 executive orders. But you can't rescind the, Const the Constitution, the Second Amendment, by executive order. That would require, you know, amending the Constitution. They've not been able to do it. They've made strenuous efforts, and they're just continuing again and again and again. So, I mean, uh, Joe, it's not for lack of trying, but thank God the American people. Look, when the Democrats are defunding the police on the one hand and wanting to take our guns on the other, where are we left? vulnerable vulnerable you had claire mccaskill come on cnn recently and say seventy thousand deaths were attributed to gun violence every year she didn't mention seventy thousand. most of those are black gang members killing one another in cities run by democrats in new york chicago especially la 
most of those deaths are black gang members killing other black gang members in turf wars. Then you have a certain percentage of suicides, which have been going up because of the terrible situation, the living condition with the lockdowns and all that. Then you have police and their performance that are duty. You have uh, civilians in self-defense, right? In fact, this is a, the, the greatest omission about gun control is the acknowledgement of millions of Americans every year use guns to defend themselves from perps. Usually they don't even have to fire them. They just show their arm and the perps disappear. Millions of times, it saves an estimated 200,000 American lives every year. So I say to Claire McCaskill, why don't you talk about the defensive use of guns, which saves 200,000 lives every year, because if you take guns away from law-abiding citizens, they won't be able to defend themselves. And you could add 200,000 as a conservative estimate, because once the perps know they got a free fire zone, that no civilian has a gun, the numbers are going to rise astronomically. I mean, this gun control agenda is so colossally stupid. It, it can only be one who has nefarious designs on the United States that want to take guns away from the American people. We had a, a letter to the editor in the Wisconsin State Journal, and I, I wrote a response because this, this author was saying, surely the founding fathers didn't have military-style weapons in mind when they authored the Second Amendment. And I was pointing out, the founding fathers had exactly military weapons in mind when they wrote the Second Amendment. We had just beat the British by having citizen soldiers who were armed. They wanted to have the whole population, citizen soldiers who could aid to the country. And they're not talking about toy guns. They were talking about the best weapons of the time, which were muskets. And, you know, so all this demonization of the AR-15, it's going to go nowhere, in my opinion. It's the most popular all-around, most versatile rifle. It's not a weapon of war. That would have to be fully automatic. It's only semi-automatic. And uh, it's best, you know, home defense, community defense, national defense. All right, listen, uh, you're, first of all, you're, you're losing me big time on this. We're way off track. Also, yeah. of those 23 executive orders, number 11 was to nominate an ATF director. These were none of these executive orders did anything to stop anyone from buying a gun most of them have to do with safety let's move on back to jfk yeah totally dr we could do the gun thing another day i'm really puzzled joe by that response because uh comments i made are all well founded so i'm struck Joe, we can do another Wait, show on that. You said, you said, why didn't he just grab the guns? We got a constitution. We got a second amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. He was doing a lot of infringement, but he couldn't go all the way. It wasn't even constitutional, for God's sake. Many of these executive orders have no lawful significance. They pass them because they induce people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do and all the mischief occurs between the time they issue an unconstitutional order and it's declared to be unconstitutional by the courts because that takes a long time. And that's when all the mischief occurs. Executive Bye. order number seven is launch a safe and responsible gun ownership program. I mean, again, these aren't, it's nothing to take the guns away. I think yeah, that's Joe, a Joe, 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 
Joe, you're pro gun too. I'm pro gun, 100. Yeah. I'm pro gun. Yeah. But yeah, none of these executive orders did anything in the way of making it harder. About three of them deal with background. Oh, checks. why did why did why did he even bother, Joe, for crying out loud? What do you think? Politics. All events and confiscate our guns. That was Listen, Doctor Fetzer, as I look at this list, this is to me like the gun control bill they passed a month ago. It it that that thing they passed a month ago, beautiful bipartisan bill. Everybody's happy. It would not have prevented any of the shootings that have happened recently. Of not course. a one. I agree so with it's, that. It's politics. These 23 executive orders are politics. I don't see anything anything on this list that would even suggest they're trying to take guns away. Let's go back to really? the women on the grassy knoll. How's that? Yeah, because uh, speaking of 23, <laughs> we got about 23 minutes. We have about 23 minutes left, so let's get this we in. We have 23 yeah. minutes left. But, but I think um, let's get I mean, the we, stuff we, we agree on, Doctor Fetzer. I'm yeah. on this with you. I'm go with ahead, you 100. Go ahead, Todd. We can totally do a gun thing on another show. Okay, whatever, whatever. <laughs> so here we go. External inconsistencies. This is pretty fascinating. You got this Bruder film, and this is how close Quinn Hill, who rushed up, he was Jackie's personal bodyguard. He never actually touches uh, 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 Jackie in the Zabruder film. But in the Knicks film, which is taken from the opposite side, they're actually in physical contact. So how can you account for this discrepancy? And the Zabruder top, he hasn't any contact with Jackie in the, in the Knicks bottom. He has physical contact. In fact, he explained he rushed up and he actually pushed Jackie back into the seat and then he lay across their bodies and would you believe he reports observing a massive fist-sized gaping wound in the back of JFK's head, which of course all by itself refutes the Warren Commission in a single stroke. So what do we have here? At the time the shots were fired, did you look at the book depository building? No. Uh, did you think at that time that the shots came from the book depository building? No, I thought it came from a fence. Uh, between the book depository and the railroad track. Uh, does anyone else who you know or who you've spoken with also believe that the shots came from there? Most everyone thought it came from the fence behind the book depository. Did you have occasion to speak with Forrest Sorrells, who was, of course, a friend of yours and the Secret Service agent in charge of Dallas that day? Yes, I did. Did he tell you where he thought the shots came from? He, he thought they were came, coming from the same place. Which is? Behind the fence. Here's some versions of the film that are pretty fascinating you probably have never seen before. like an alternative angle to the shots. Yeah, sure, opposite sides. Yeah, opposite sides.
both versions side by side we're seeing. Now we're looking at Jackie Kennedy's reactions in slow motion. Now, the one thing I can say, Dr. Fetzer, is that the, the, the Secret Serviceman that jumps in the back of the car, it's almost like he was, like, expecting it and waiting for it. Yes. Like, how quickly he reacts. Yes. And by, and, and by the way, uh, they actually had already brought the limousine to a halt, you know, to make sure Jack would be killed and his brain blown out the back of his head. That's when the limousine was motionless. So this is happening after the driver starts to take up. In fact, I don't believe Clint Hill could have got on the limousine if it had already been in motion. So they've done some artful work here. That's Clint Hill himself. Mm -hmm. John Reddy started to respond and Emery Roberts called him back. Reddy was on the other side. There's a man in the doorway there in the lower left. There's Billy Lovelady with his hands up. There's a wanted for treason, H.L. Hunt. Yeah, these clips you have are great. Look how he's pushing Jackie back. at the front seat passengers right now, the driver and the passenger. Now Gritter actually turns back and looks at JMK and then there's a brutality of the time and his head turn is twice as fast as humanly possible indicating, of course, massive energy of frames. Mm -hmm. Showing the background. The thing I never understand, if they want him dead so bad, why do they have to do it in such like a crowded place? Why couldn't they find another way to kill him? Well, let me, let me address that. That's such a great question. Let me address that. They could have killed Jack lots of ways, but the public would never have believed it wasn't a conspiracy. They had to do it in public so they could feign that everyone was there. There are lots of witnesses who would do that. 
and it's because they could control every aspect of it. They actually had FBI agents who were surveying everyone in the crowd. Gene Hill, for example, and Mary Mormon were on the opposite side where Gene called over, hey, Mr. President, look over here. We want to take your picture. And Mary Mormon took a very famous Polaroid just instances after his brains are blown out the back of his head. They were on him right away. They took them off and they took the photographs from him and they asked Jean how many shots she'd heard. And she said, well, she thought at least four. And they said, no, that was impossible. There were only three. They had agents at all the uh, photo and film processing plants around Dallas for two weeks. And with regard to any photos or films related to Dealey Plaza, they took them and they left a little card saying the, the government had taken this, you know, for evidence and implying it would be returned. But for the most part, they were never returned. When they took Orville Nick's film, when he got it back, it wasn't in the same condition it was when he they'd taken it from him. They, Beverly Oliver, known as a Babushka lady, was there with a brand new camera shooting right at the grassy knoll from up close and personal, but it's shown all kinds of wonderful details. The FBI came and took her film even before she had it out of her camera and it's never been seen again. So, you know, they had full control mm -hmm. of, of yeah, the right. situation yeah. and of the media and what would be reporting. And there yeah. were even media plants, you know, that were reporting from the beginning. Now, Dan Rather has taken a lot of hits for claiming that he watched the film Saturday when it was processed at Kodak and he saw JFK slump forward. Well, maybe after he saw that, he didn't stick around to see that Jackie eased him back up and then he got hit and went back because he reported that. And everyone, when they saw the extant version of film, thought Dan Rather got it wrong, but Dan Rather got it right. He was looking at the real film and all they were seeing was the edited version. So, you know, he, he gets a better pass on that. And, and, and by the way, on 9-11, when Building 7 came down, Dan Rather said, this is just like the controlled demolition resorts and casinos we see in Las Vegas. He had it absolutely right because Building 7 was a classic controlled demolition. So Dan has taken some hits he may not have fully deserved. Were you going to say something, Joe? Um, I was, and then you totally distracted me with that because I'm a Tower <laughs> 7 guy, Dr. Fetzer. He's <laughs> been very suspicious of that one. Well, remember, I, I founded Scholars for the Love of Truth in December of 2000. Five, so you know i've been at that a long time too i remember what i was going to say uh todd's question uh and I, obviously you know this dr fetzer but uh from then until 1968 assassinations were pretty hot and there's kind of conspiracies to some of those well malcolm x oh yeah Martin luther king sure. and, and then and then john's brother uh bobby kennedy bobby, sure. uh all all within a matter of time so that kind of not to mention i think if you look at um Oh, oh God, uh, uh, France Ferdinand. Again, it was a, an assassination attempt where they sort of bottlenecked him uh, and they had yeah. multiple guys shooting at him. Yeah. So, again, that the idea of the car plot, Dr. Fetzer, is something we had seen 30 years earlier in World War One. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that that was a pretty common plan. And and yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. I think it's fascinating that there were teams of other assassins in Dallas who obviously walked away like, whoa. Uh, I wonder, Dr. Fetcher, do you think that they knew there were other groups there to do it or was somebody like getting ready to do it and it was like, oh, somebody beat me to it. 
uh, they had a whole lot of call red herrings. They had a lot of hitmen there. In fact, uh, I got to know the third of the three tramps is not E. Howard Hunt. His name is Chauncey Marvin Holt. He actually, he was a forger, counterfeiter, an artist. He was working as a contract agent for the CIA at a, the Los Angeles Stamp and Stationery Store, uh, where he told me the CIA has all these innocuous sounding proprietaries. This was interesting because it was like five floors and the CIA was running their counter ID counterfeiting where they made up the Alec Heidel ID for Oswald, but also the lower floors were actually a legitimate business making police and sheriff identification. So if they needed to have a, a, a phony cop badge or a sheriff badge, they could give them a real sheriff or cop badge just because of the proximity. Now, Chauncey was instructed to prepare 15 sets of forged Secret Service credentials for use in and around Dealey Plaza. And he was instructed where to put them in a red pickup truck that would be behind the picket fence. Now that parking lot was used by the Dallas Police Department. He went there, wasn't there. So he wandered around Dealey Plaza. He told me he saw more assassins and mercenaries than you'd find at a soldier's of fortune convention. So they'd all, they'd all been brought in to create a whole lot of leads in different directions that, that were not directly related. Then he went back, the truck was there, he left them. He had been instructed to proceed thereafter down to the railroad yard uh, 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 and there'd be a boxcar that appeared to be locked, but it would be unlocked. He was in the company of Charles Harrelson, who's the father of Woody Harrelson, the actor, and Charles Rogers, who he knew as Richard Montoya. So they went down to the box store and climbed in and to their surprise discovered it was loaded with ammunition, explosives and weapons. Now, the train started to pull out, but the railroad yard supervisor thought something was wrong, called him back and called the police and they apprehended them and then walked them through Dealey Plaza but it was very odd. They really weren't maintaining security. They even let General uh, Edward Lansdale, whom I believe orchestrated the assassination, position the shooters and determined the sequence of shots, walk past them as a signal to them that everything's okay. You're not in any trouble. But Ch Chauncey told me about that. I believe they were going to be the backup patsies if Lee Oswald didn't play out. Because you got these three guys, and they, they all had histories with organized crime, uh, murders, and the whole bit. And uh, they had this, you know, railroad car full of explosive weapons. It would have been pretty easy to make the case. These were the actual shooters, but Oswald played out, so they didn't need him. But I got to know Chauncey. I did a three and a half hour video on a, just a shoestring budget that covered virtually every aspect. And when I discovered that Chauncey was still alive, I sent him a copy. He was living in Lemon Grove, Southern California at the time. And it was very odd. I was just awakened in my home in Duluth at 3.30 in the morning. It was Chauncey telling me he sat up all night watching my video and he thought I had it right. And I thought that's pretty good for a guy who was an actual participant in the assassination until he thought I had it right. I'm, I have I have uh, reason to believe there are participants in Sandy Hook who also think I have a right, you know. They, <laughs> so they, they don't so, bear any malice toward me because my book is 100% true, which is why they're trying to suppress it. So, uh, Dr. Fetcher, I'm going to ask you, and I don't want to go down this road. Are you, I mean, I know you're familiar with Pan Am Flight 103. That was one of those situations where they blamed it on the Libyans, but 
uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist, there's about 10 other people associated with that flight, people on that flight, including CIA drug mules, uh, all who could have been responsible for that attack. Yo, remind me of that flight. What were the circumstances? Uh, Lockerbie, Scotland. It, it was uh, oh, the fun. Lockerbie thing. Yeah, it was blamed on Gaddafi. Yeah, I've never no, believed that. that. Nah, he had not. But again, that was one of those where this plane, Todd, was flooded with other possible groups and people who could have done it. And so kind of, again, the same idea with JFK, where you flood the grassy knoll with all sorts of assassins. You're just it's lead after lead after lead that maybe goes nowhere and distracts from obviously finding the truth. Yeah, you'll 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 learn that there were a whole group of uh, high-ranking officials with the agency who were in Houston and Maine to pay their last respects. Hmm. But that appears to be a CIA op to blame Gaddafi. Gaddafi, you know, was actually an admirable guy, a real humanitarian. He was using the oil resources of Libya to benefit the Libyan people. Yeah, he was. National health care, public housing, you know. Uh, public education. He gave newly married couple twenty five thousand equivalent to start a new family. The great waterworks. He was introducing the gold back the uh, dinar, the Libyan dinar. Well, the Rothschild weren't happy about that, right? They, in fact, when I heard that the resistance group in Libya, their first act had been found a new central bank. I knew something was wrong with this story. And, and it turns out the French wanted to preserve Africa's or neo-colonial preserve. So they ran this massive op, slaughtered the Libyans. They had the most humane society perhaps ever on earth. And it's now been reduced to slave markets and anarchy and tribal. Hillary had a key role in all that, by the way. And, you know, Gaddafi didn't put up a fight. He was actually in a a convoy under a white flag going to surrender in a location specified by the Department of State when Hillary had the convoy interdicted. Honey, right after we invaded Iraq, Muammar Gaddafi called the United Nations and he was like, I have chemical weapons. You should come get them. Just because he he knew he knew he was going to get overthrown if he looked like a threat. He literally turned his chemical weapons in and they still took his ass out. Gaddafi was a good guy portrayed as a bad guy, and it's really terrible. So he's going to surrender at this location specified by the Department of State and Hillary's Secretary of State. She has a convoy interdicted, and he's brutally murdered and sodomized with a bayonet. All right, so I think what we should do is make this two parts because it's going to go on too long. And um, Jim, maybe we'll have you on in about another month or so. Sure. That sounds good. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming on. Check us out. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you're great. And, uh, you know, uh, someday Joe's going to have to tell me in Syria because if the Democrats aren't going to take our guns, I don't know what the hell they're doing. You know? <laughs> so do you want to... For another day, but I like what you're doing. I like what you're about, and I'm glad to contribute whatever I can to the cause. So Yeah, where can, where can people find you? Well, they just took my blog. So uh, I'm trying to create a new one, uh, jameshfetzer.org. And you can find uh, my, I have a bit shoot channel, Jim Fetzer. So the, I, I'm doing 10 shows a week, okay? I have a show five days a week called Need to Know that are news updates, you, typically with two other commentators. So I present the stories and get their comments. Then I do uh, the radio show Monday, Wednesday, Friday called The Raw Deal. 
That's on Revolution Radio Studio B, Monday, Wednesday, Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Eastern time. Then I do a David Zumlich show every Wednesday in the early, though I don't know when it actually gets up. I'm not sure if it goes out live or not, but it, I think it actually does go out live. That's it. That's at 11 a.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Then I do a show called Truth Versus News on Sundays, which has three other commentators. Mm -hmm. and, and then I'm doing now the new JFK show uh, Wednesday evenings, usually yeah. we do. Yeah. So I think if you add it up, you got five was two is eight, nine, 10. That's actually right. the 11th yeah. show if we uh, throw in the new JFK show. And then I'm doing interviews, you know, I was yeah. doing one. Yeah. I, it's so good, Todd, you wrote to me because Michael Deacon was interviewing me after a long absence and I had written him down on my uh, calendar, but I hadn't written you guys down on the calendar. So <laughs> yeah, I yeah. kind of had this uneasy feeling something was wrong. So when I got your email, you know, I ab aborted with Michael. I mean, we've done a lot of shows oh, together, okay. so we'll, we'll get back. It's not a, not a problem. And uh, I'm glad to get this ship launched because you're, you're going to love what there is to come. So episode two, we're going to get into, I'm sure, the grassy knoll. And if anybody's listening or watching, send me any messages that we can um, ask Dr. Fetzer for next episode. So yeah. I think that does it, Jedi. That's it, Marks. The end is here, but not for the JFK conspiracy. We're just going to keep it going and going and going. Thank you to James Fetzer for coming back on our show and check him out on his website, jameshfetzer.org. Aloha. Aloha, indeed.